right into God's word. Thank you, God, for once again a great time of worshiping you. And uh, I just, that just, I love that thing that you are our rescuer. You truly have rescued us from ourselves and from sin and from darkness and death. And we're so grateful, God. And, and now as we look into your word, God, may you be, uh, your spirit be so present with us in a way that's allowing us to hear things maybe we wouldn't normally hear, to learn things we normally wouldn't hear um, because of you, because of what you have for us this morning. So if we invite you to do that in Christ's name, amen. I want to start um, by asking you um, uh, if you can think who in your mind, think of, put, think of someone in your mind, who's someone in your mind that you know personally that you believe that this person would probably be the last person that you could probably think of to become an all-out follower of Jesus? I think we can all kind of think of those people, that person in our mind that we have, that we know. I'm not thinking of someone that is way out there, but I'm thinking of someone that we know and we just think, we know God can do what it, God can do anything, but we're like, man, if they became, I mean, think about those people that you found out like maybe from high school and you found out later that they became a follower of Jesus and not only just they gave me a Christian, but they're like on fire and they're like just going for it. You're going, Them? I mean, I can think of some people in high school that I know that became believers later, and I was like, uh, wow. I just, I, just, I just couldn't believe that. I don't know if you've ever had that happen as, as well. I have. I can, like I said, I can think of different people that that has happened. But here's another question, though. Have you ever wondered if there might be actually a part that you could possibly play in someone like that coming to salvation? Someone especially, like anybody but especially someone that you think, I just couldn't imagine this person coming to Christ. Now, well, if you've been, if you've been with us for these last chunk of weeks and in our spirit series in the book of Acts, we've been looking really at the persecution that the early church was under. Specifically, remember, this persecution the early church was under by this high-powered religious leader named Saul. And remember, if you remember, the persecution really started when he really condoned and consented to uh, Stephen being stoned. You know, Stephen was preaching and, and, you know, saying things that the religious leaders did not like, and so they wanted to kill him, and being the high-ranking guy, they, he just didn't do anything to stop it from happening. And once that happened, things went crazy. And remember, we saw that uh, during this persecution that most of the early believers fled Jerusalem. They scattered throughout all the different um, surrounding regions. They just had, they bolted. They were afraid. And we also saw that really, though, what the positive thing, though, of this scattering was that it had led to the gospel being spread throughout all these regions. No longer was the gospel just being shared in Jerusalem. It took persecution to get it to go all out and go everywhere into all these different regions. Now, last time we looked at one particular incident of, a, this, of a, someone doing kind of some one-on-one evangelism. Remember, remember Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch that he came across? And we kind of saw that and it demonstrated for us some really important elements for effectively sharing the gospel with people. Now, this morning, though, what we're going to look at is a story where Jesus actually personally reveals himself, himself and transforms the life of the very person that is bringing all this per- intense persecution to the early church. I think yeah, I know, most of you know where we're going this week. 
And here's the interesting thing. By doing so, we're going to see to the extent to which Jesus will go not only to draw unlikely people to himself, but we're also going to see how he desires to use ordinary people, people like you and like me, to be a part and play a crucial part of their redemption story. This is a great story this morning. And I know many of you know this story, but I hope we get some things out of this that can really be personal uh, to us. So let's get started. We're in chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1. Look at the first couple of verses. says, But Saul, still breathing threats and, mur- threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here we got this Saul, and he's not content with just simply driving them out. He's not content with that, of driving them out of Jerusalem. Saul is seeking to pursue these believers wherever they go. He is going to get them. And this thing where he says that he was breathing threats of murder, I think this guy was a little ticked. This guy had an anger problem, didn't he, a little bit. This just shows how this hostile attitude that Saul had toward believers, which I think we're starting to see some of that in our society today a little bit, aren't we? A little bit, a little more undertone because there's acceptance, but now we've got this whole thing going on in the Middle East and threats, all this thing, these, these deep threats of hate, and this is what was going on with him. And Because we, we saw last week that literally, in the last chapter, I mean, that Saul was literally going door to door, dragging out people that he knew were followers of Jesus and taking them to jail. So this guy is going for it. And somehow he found out that a bunch of scat- some of these scattered believers had reached uh, and also been successful in sharing the gospel as far as Damascus. Now you gotta understand, Damascus is about is this was this big commercial hub that was about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. When we think 135 miles, that's no big deal. I'll get in my car, I'll be there in a couple hours. That's pretty far when you're walking. Okay, so it had really begun to spread, the gospel had. And so in his murderous mindset, he obtains these letters from the high priest in order to be able to extradite these guys, to be able to bring back to trial those who fled from Jerusalem. So he was just going to, you're not going, oh no, you're not getting away. He was, this was a man on a mission. He had a mission. I am going to take these guys down. I'm going to take this sect down. And by the way, we see here it's called, he says, The Way. Um, it was, this was an early name for the Christians a lot of times, sometimes, presumably because, remember, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, it also kind of had to mean to it, the way to God, the way. So they kind of had this, this nickname to them. So let's look at what, what happens to Saul, though, this famous, this famous incident that happens on his way to Damascus. Look at verse 3. He says, Now as he went on his way... He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what what you are to do. I mean, 
put yourself, let's, let's, those with a good imagination, think of yourself, think of what's going on in the scene here. Here's Saul walking down the road just with this murderous heart, okay? This mur- he's, he's bent on squashing this new and fledgling sect when all of a sudden this light, one that he describes later, he says is brighter than the sun. So you, many, we've all made the mistake of looking right into the sun, right? It's like, oh, this was brighter than the sun, he says. And so it knocks him to the ground. And then this voice asks him, hey, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine? Think if that was you. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul, Saul obviously doesn't realize it yet, but what he is seeing is the glory of the risen Jesus. That's what, that's what he is seeing here. And I assume that once he gathers his composure, he, he, he realizes out of respect, he asks, who are you, Lord? Who, who, who in the world could be speaking to me in this way? Which leads Jesus to identify himself and telling Saul that because he is persecuting his followers, he's actually persecuting Jesus himself. What this actually tells us, you want to follow along if you want it, the little note sheet there if you want to follow along. What this shows us in the first one is the depth of our being united with Christ. We can't skip over this. I think a lot of times we read this story and we go, okay, that's neat that we're being, he's saying that when they're persecuting him, they're persecuting uh, him, us, when they're persecuting him as well. Look at what, look at what we read late, later from Saul, who then goes by his other name, Paul. Look what he writes about this. He says in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, because of God's great love for us, we have been made alive or been united with Christ. You see, before surrendering, and we know we know this, but this is a great reminder, before surrendering to the Holy Spirit's urging to turn to Jesus, we're dead to things of God. We are dead to the thing. I mean, people say, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual, or I do these things, or I, I know this about God. I, no, no. Until you respond to the Holy Spirit's nudge and urging to turn to Christ, you are absolutely dead to spiritual things, to true spiritual things, the things of God. There's, with, before we come to Christ, there's no good within ourselves. There's no desire to submit to God or submit our lives to God. There might be this desire, oh yeah, I want to follow God, but there's not this true deep desire to say, I'm all in. Everything is yours, God. We're dead spiritually and have no way to make ourselves alive again. While we were in this dead state, God provided a way for us to be spiritually alive through the person and the work of Jesus. Now, be t- now this whole thing of being alive together with Christ means that we're, uni- we're actually united with Christ in the deepest way. This whole word united in Scripture, it really has a great word picture to it. It's like growing close together. It's kind of like this, ever seen a vine that's intertwined growing together? That's the picture that this word in the Bible uses when it talks about being united. It's literally just wound together, not just close together, 
but deeply wound together. Number three on your notes, if you want to follow that, write that in. It says, what this means for the follower of Jesus is that literally what is his is ours. What is, huh? Oh, number two. Did I say three? Ignore me. Well, not all the time, but ignore me there. Um, what is his is ours. Here's the thing, you guys. Because we're united with Christ, his death is now our death. His suffering is our suffering. His resurrection is our resurrection. His victory is our victory. His righteousness is our righteousness. His spiritual resources are our spiritual resources. His power is our power. Are you getting, the, getting this? It's ours as well. His, and here's the best part. Jesus' union with the Father, guess what? Is our union with the Father. So often we think that, yeah, there's Jesus and God, and I'm just kind of tagging along. That's not how it works. Spiritually how it works. We are engrafted with, Christ, with God in Christ just like he is. That's how he sees us. Man, that is amazing. Think of what that does for how we see ourselves our self-worth. Because union with also you, what it does is it, union, it unifies us with everybody else that is a part of the body of Christ as well, which he is the head over. You see, the reality of being united with Christ should remind us exactly who we are in him. This is our identity. And I don't know about you, but it's so easy to strive and find our identity in so many other things than what we just talked about here. For guys, it's what I do, right? Well, what I do. So, so what, what's one of the one, first or second question we ask? I know I do all the time when you meet and get to know somebody. What do you do? Yeah. That's not, we're just trying to be interesting, but really a lot of times though, that's where we find our identity, what I do, how I perform, how I do this, how, this, is, this is who I am. But this whole being united with Christ tells us, no, who I am is what Jesus is told, what I, what who I am in Jesus. What is his is also mine. That is an amazing message. And it's all because of grace, not because we've done anything good. We haven't earned any of it. It is amazing. So that's a powerful thing here when he's talking about, he says, hey, say Saul, when you're messing with my people, guess what? You're messing with me. You're, you're literally messing with me. Okay? So here he goes on. Then he goes on. Finally, in these verses, we see that Jesus tells Paul to, to get up <laughs> after he's kind of, whoa, get up. Go into Damascus where you'll be told what to do. So here we see Paul, the, the persecutor, with letters in his hand to extradite these followers back to Jerusalem for punishment is now Saul, the witness to the risen Jesus, commissioned to be his ambassador. Crazy. That is just crazy to think about. Now look what, look, look, look what Luke says uh, happens next. He says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate or drank. I don't think I would be, if I couldn't see, at least I don't think I'd be able to eat or drink after something would be in shock after all that. So these men that we see, the men that were with him actually experienced things a little bit different than he did. They actually hear the voice, but they don't see anything. That had to be a trippy thing, huh? They're not, they're, not, they're not seeing anything going on. They're just hearing this whatever booming voice saying, Saul, what are you doing? So they're probably creeped out a little bit. Can't imagine what they're going. Their eyes are probably wide open, mouths wide open, just gaping, going, what is going, going on here? So Saul rises up. Gets, he go, he's totally blind now. He can't see, and he's led to the hand into Damascus where he sits for three days, probably sitting in silence, praying, just but probably praying different than this Pharisee ever prayed before, don't you think? think Paul's, you think Saul, who becomes Paul, you think his prayer life changed a little bit after this? You know it did. You know it did. I mean, he saw the glory of the risen Jesus. That's amazing. So he didn't eat any of that stuff. He was this, this powerful, influential guy had all of a sudden become powerless, helpless, humbled, radically changed. Now, we get another character that comes into the story. We're introduced to a man that is from Damascus who's going to play a very important part in Saul's story of redemption. Look at verse 10. It says, And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. You know he is. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So we're introduced to this guy, Ananias, who is a Jewish believer whom Jesus appears to in a vision and tells him to go to the house where Saul is staying And he's told that, hey, Saul has been praying, and you know what? He has seen a vision of what's going to come here now, of you coming and laying hands on him and him giving his his sight back. Now, remember, this is Saul. This is what, remember Saul, what he has been all about up until this point? He has been all about persecuting believers whom Ananias is one of them. So Ananias, it says here, he's not only heard about Saul's intense persecution of the followers of Jesus, but he has also heard about the authority that he's been given from the higher ups to do whatever he needs to do to get them back. So you could imagine Ananias's initial apprehension to this request. Uh, uh, who, what? You, uh, do you wait? Are we on the same page here? Have you been around the last six months, God? Have you been? You've, you've been around, right? <laughs> And he says, yes. But Jesus tells him, don't worry. 
He reassures him that Saul is now a chosen instrument who will help spread the good news of the gospel to countless people, both Jews and non-Jews. This had to be a massive shock to Ananias. Saul? What? What happened to him? Saul? Let's put this in a little perspective first of all here. Let's Let's just think about it. Imagine back in 2011, you hear that a guy named Osama bin Laden has had a radical conversion to Christianity, and God is now using him to spread the gospel throughout the Middle East. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? That sounds absolutely crazy. Or imagine being back in 1945 and hearing a guy about a guy named Adolf Hitler who's been radically saved and now is being used as a powerful instrument of God for spreading the gospel throughout Europe. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Sounds like you wouldn't even put those two things together at all. Yet, really, in a real sense, this is the magnitude of the conversion of Saul. That's what it's like. Yet, here's an interesting thing, and I really want to go with this just for a little bit here. We see that what this new commissioning to be a chosen instrument of Jesus, to be the one who's going to be a witness for him, look what it says. It says that it's going to be a costly one for Saul. It says it is going to be a costly one. He says that he is going to endure much suffering. And you know what? Much suffering Paul endures. Let's just take a little peek real quick. Listen to what he says years later that he went through when he writes to the church in Corinth. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, (laughs) wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers. In the toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other, besides all that, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Huh. And I'm sure this isn't it. I'm sure this isn't an exhaustive list. This is what Paul went through for being an instrument of God. Seems, seems kind of depressing, doesn't it? Seems kind of, kind of bleak. It, what the truth is here that Paul actually saw suffering as a way of life for the follower of Jesus. When he's describing this, he's not saying, look how unique my life is. Don't worry. It's not going to happen to you. Come, enjoy the ride. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He accept, this, this is what the way of life is. Remember the church in Philippi, he wrote this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and near, now hear that I have. So Saul's saying, get ready to put yourself in my shoes, remember? And to his younger disciple, Timothy, he wrote this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you here desire to live a godly life? 
Did you just hear that? All that will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, the reality is when we choose to take a stand for biblical truth, we can almost assume that we will somehow be misunderstood. Not every time, but there in no way should we be like, what? I can't believe the persecution I'm getting for standing up for biblical truth. It's part of it. It's part of it. Welcome to being a follower of Jesus. That's what he's saying this is about. And we're the good thing, but the good news is we're in good company. Yet the, here's the cool thing is Paul, I mean Saul and became Paul, saw suffering for the sake of Jesus as a good thing. He didn't say, all this stuff I did, pray for me, deliver me, pray that life gets better. Pray that it, isn't that what we do so oftentimes? Oh, I'm going through this stuff. I'll pray that it ends. Is that the right prayer to pray? Paul never says that. Never he says that, says that here. Help me get out of this stuff. To the church in Philippi, again, he wrote this in Philippians 3. He said, for, the, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, what, gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I love this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, period. No. Power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. I think so often we say, I don't know if you remember that old song by Keith Green, I want to, I need to be more like Jesus. Jesus, I want to be more like Jesus. Do you know what you're saying? I want to be like Jesus. I want to experience his power. I want to experience goodness. I want to experience his grace. Are you ready to experience the persecution? Are you ready to experience the suffering? Because really, that's what's going to make you more like Jesus. Number three, the reality is that suffering is always to be a part of being a true follower of Jesus. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) (laughs) Suffering is always, yet is to be seen as a privilege and a joy. A privilege and a joy. See, Paul understood this. I love what John Piper says. He, he kind of echoes this whole thought when he says this. He says, through suffering, we are meant to go deeper in our relationship with Christ. You get to know him better when you share his pain. The people who write most deeply and sweetly about the preciousness of Christ are people who had suffered with him deeply. Now, this can be a whole other sermon we could talk about. I don't want to go, we don't want to get too much further on that. But that's the reality of what we've got. But it's also the blessed reality that we have. By the way, a side note here is that usually, the, oftentimes, the suffering that you and I probably have to endure the most as a follower of Jesus, typically, it's going to come from the outside, but typically, most of it's going to come from the inner battle for the control of our heart, isn't it? For the control of our heart and for our true affections. This, I mean, this battle, this persecution happens as we strive and contend for our willingness to die to ourselves and surrender completely to the Lord. I, I'm, not, I'm not one for making resolutions, but 
I was listening to a podcast set of these church leaders I listened to, and I was really inspired by this thing to set a few goals for myself. And, and really, one of my goals for this year is to try to identify something, hopefully daily, that I need to die to in order to be more like Christ. It might be the same thing day after day after day for a while, but my goal is to every day, what, what do I need to die more to? What about, what are my longings? What, what affections do I have that in order for me to truly experience my life in Christ, I need to die? Because really, the life of following Christ is a life about dying. Dying to ourself in ways that we just can't do ourselves. Think about that. What are the things in your life that you know, man... I need God to help me to die to that because it has a grip on me. Or I, I lean that way. That's what we learn from stuff here. Okay, let's get back to Ananias and what he does. Look at verse 17. He says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, and the Lord, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. So we see that Ananias goes ahead and he obeys the Lord. He goes to Saul. But notice the change in attitude that he has towards Saul. Remember, it was like, what? That guy? What does he call him? Brother. Brother Saul. Number four in your notes, this is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is to give us a heart of love and acceptance for all, even for those who have wronged us. That's the power of the gospel. Not to just be like, yeah, I'm going to like be all about being loving the people that think like I do. You voted for Trump? I voted for Trump. You, know, you voted for you know, Okay, cool. Whoa. What? No, this is the power of the gospel, the power to break strongholds, the power to change hearts, the power to change minds and lives. That's what's going on here. Ananias goes on to tell Saul that the, the same Jesus who appeared to him on the road, hey, he appeared to me too. <laughs> and he told me to come to you and to lay my hands on you and you're going to get your sight back and you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that, and then notice the response is immediate. We see here that these things like scales fall from Saul's eyes and he can see again. And just like the Ethiopian eunuch that we looked at about a month ago, he immediately gets baptized, okay? And he starts eating again. They take him and he just, we don't know what happens right after that. But can, what a wild story. Isn't this, isn't this just wild to think about what happened to Saul and how Ananias, I mean, God didn't need to, did God need to bring Ananias into this picture? He didn't need to at all. But he did, and we're going to see why. Because really, the main idea that I really believe that we can take away from this story is this. It's up on the screen for you. The same Jesus who sought out Paul humbled him, revealed himself to him, and transformed him into someone willing to die for him, still seeks people today and invites us to participate in their story of salvation. God is no less radically on the move to save all types of people 
all, from all walks of life and to use us to be a part of that process, to be a part of that story. I mean, the stories of how people have had encountered with Jesus are many, really. We've heard all sorts of ones that, that people we never would imagine. They vary wild, very wild, widely, most not as dramatic as Saul's, yet they're just as powerful and just as life-changing. And here's the question. The question for us is, are we making sure that we're being open and available to, to proactively playing a part of their story? So often we're more, we're so excited, God, get them, oh, go, get, go get them saved, but are we willing to say, if you want to use me in this, I'm willing to be used in this story? Because you guys, this is what the book of Acts has been all about so far. It's this invitation by God to all of us to participate in this work of redeeming mankind to himself. Because whether you and I know it or not, or whether we believe it or not, you and I play a crucial role in God's plan for saving people. We play a crucial role in that. So what might that look like as we wrap up here? What practically might that look like? And it's not as complicated as I think we think it should, would be. What's our world? How do we play a part in people coming to part of their story of coming to Christ. Number five on your notes. One way is to regularly be, pray, be regularly praying for those that we know that aren't saved. That's kind of a no-duh, right? Seems obvious. But here's the thing. Are we doing that regularly and effectively? Are you and I do we have people in mind? Do we have someone in mind that we desperately want to know Jesus? And we are praying constantly for them to be saved. And I'm not talking about, God, please save my friend. That's, that's, not, a prayer of self, that's not a prayer of helping to want someone to know that's okay. But the reality is we need to have be, be more involved in that. Remember the Bible, because the Bible tells us that the enemy binds the unbelievers from the truth. The enemy is involved in this process already. In some ways, we can choose or choose not to be involved. The devil's involved. He's totally involved. Second Corinthians, he says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Have you ever been thinking about it and go, how can people not understand this? This is the most amazing thing in the world. I know the most amazing truth in the world. The God of the universe sent his son to die for me so that in turn, he took the place of all my sin that keeps me from having an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And why wouldn't everybody want to know that? Here's why. Because the enemy, the God of this world, is blinding people's minds. He's heavily at work. And because of this, we need to be praying on a regular basis that not only would God, um, in his infinite power, protect this person or these people that we're praying for from the lies of the enemy, but here's a really important one. Pray that God would be bringing people into that person's life. That God would, would supernaturally cause them to have a, a, a conversation with somebody Someone that just says something to him, an aunt that says something out of the blue that 
we had no idea that it was going to radically change our lives. Someone just says something. Because this is, that's how it works. We need to be praying that and asking God to bring people in and also ask that we, hey, I'm willing, God, if you want to use me in this process, let me know, okay? But God, do whatever it takes. I pray this for my, one of my, my youngest son. My wife and I pray almost every, pretty much every single day for his salvation. And we're always praying, always praying that God would bring someone into their life. Because so often we think it's like, oh, I don't, it's, we, we carry the burden of having to say everything to get whoever to, to know the right thing, especially if it's our kid or a relative or something like that. I got to say something. God might be saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to use you. Or he says, I've used you. <laughs> now I got other people in mind that are going to maybe say, and, and t- get, you know, oftentimes those people never even know that they were a part of the process. Never even know. They were just being faithful, though. So we need to be praying regularly. Think of that person that you want to know to come to know Jesus. Write their name down. Put it somewhere that you'll remember to daily pray for them, that the enemy would be bound, that God would use his power to bind the enemy and help them to see, bring someone into their life, please. God, do whatever. That's a dangerous one, isn't it? God, do whatever. Well, I pray that for my son. Now, I have to go, do what? <sighs> but more than anything, I want him to know Jesus. More than anything. Another way. What's another way? The other way, number six, we can play a crucial part in the redemptive story in unbelievers. To be willing, this is a long one, be willing to be obedient to the Lord's leading by demonstrably, demonstratively showing love and compassion along with sharing the gospel with those who don't necessarily think like us or who we think are the furthest from being interested in the things of God. Think about that. You never know. We might be thinking, I know that guy. He's not interested He's not interested in God at all. Or she, oh, what she, even by what she just said, oh my gosh, her views on life, socially, politically, sexually, mentally, whatever, is just are out there. Wow. That's, that's wild. We never know how God's been working on a person's life. We don't know. We just don't know. We need to be willing to love, embrace, and walk alongside those with different political, social, cultural, and religious views than ours. Knowing that I'm just going to be present with them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to care for them. And I'm going to take advantage of opportunities when the Lord opens the door to say something, even if it might mean um, some persecution from that person. Now, obviously, that has to be done with tact and care. But am I willing to do that? Or do we separate the people? Okay, we think like them. They don't think like us. Ooh, that's like, you know, I'm not going to go, you know, I would never go to that place because that's where that guy hangs out. I don't want to be around. Really? Where did Jesus go? Who did Jesus hang out with? Yes. Thank you. Think about besides his disciples, who did Jesus mainly hang out with? (laughs) The people that the religious people thought, poof. What are you thinking? Remember, he was even accused of that 
Oh, he, he drinks and eats with sinners and all that. Because that's what he knew he was here for. And that's what we're here for. This is the way Jesus was willing to be around with people of all backgrounds, everything. The point is, the same Jesus, like I said, the same Jesus who sought out Saul still seeks people today. My friends, let's be ready to give ourselves to being willing and courageous enough to proactively play a part in other people's story of redemption because God is inviting us to do that. Not to be a superstar evangelist, but to just to be faithful. Faithful in prayer. And some of you are thinking right now, I've stopped praying for that aunt of mine, that sister of mine. That's okay. This morning is a reminder. This passage is a reminder to us. Be praying. Be ready to be involved. Because if he did it with Saul, <laughs> can he do it with that person? <laughs> of course he can. A couple questions I want to throw at you. Um, let's go to that second one, Phil. Um, I want you to listen. You can turn to the person next to you and just kind of ask, talk about this a little bit. Um, and just, just really quickly, because I know it's kind of weird a little bit, but why can it be difficult to accept that suffering is a part of following Jesus? Talk about that just real quick. Why, could that, why might that be a hard thing, pill to swallow? Go ahead. Talk with a person right around you real quick about that. All right, let's hear. Let's hear. Let's just hear a couple. Let's, let's hear a couple from you guys. Why can it be so difficult? Why can it be so difficult to say, accept that suffering is a part of following Jesus? <laughs> That's a good one right there. That kind of like says it all, doesn't it? We're Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But does anybody want to expound on that? <laughs> what is anything else that came to mind? Oh, that's so right. That's, so, that's a great way to put it. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing all the right stuff. One plus one equals two, right? Not in God's economy, it doesn't. Good. What, anything else that just guys t- you mentioned? Yeah. 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 So true. So true. Anything else? Yeah. sometimes it's our perspective on what really is evil. Sometimes we think it's evil that it's evil that I'm having to go through this, or it's evil that I'm having to be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable must be sin, right? Not necessarily. No. 
So yeah, good point. Okay, uh, next quick question. I just want to see if anybody has some things on this. This last question. Uh, what? What in what? <laughs> hello. In what ways might knowing that God invites you to play a crucial part in people's salvation impact the way that you pray and interact with them? How might just knowing this whole truth that we just talked about, knowing that, oh, it's up there, not up there. How might knowing that God invites you, he wants us to play a part in people's salvation, impact the way that you're going to pray? We've already talked about some of this, but and pray and interact. What are some things that just come to your mind? Well, keeping that in mind throughout the day yeah. can certainly help you be ready. I mean, if you're, as long as you're in the Word regularly, it can help you be ready for each interaction. And yeah. Yeah. Kind of have you kind of you're like on the blocks already, huh? You're ready to go. Yeah, so good. Having that mindset, that mindset, of, I'm a missionary. Wherever I'm at, I'm a missionary for God. Yeah. Good. What else? Anything else you can think of? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that leads to the last, not a question, it's just to uh, put that last one up there. Um, what three people, one to three people, can you be regularly and effectively praying for Jesus to reveal himself? Could you imagine if the body of Christ around the world, if, we, if I, if we committed to do this and really stayed doing this, that we were praying for a certain person almost on a daily basis that God would move? Could you imagine the the things that we would just be hearing and experiencing. Because oftentimes we don't say, oh, because God, because oftentimes God's on a different timetable. God might, his plan might be for you to be praying for a certain person for the next 20 years. That might be the plan. Get in that plan. I'm, I'm talking to myself, by the way, here too. Get in that plan. Stay with that plan. If it could happen with Saul, <laughs> anybody, anybody. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and how, how good it is and how challenging it is for us and how encouraging as well. And I like, as, as Jenny said, the pressure really is off of us. We don't, we don't make people come to you, God, but you ask us to play a part. And we can play a part by in, <laughs> interceding for them to come to know you, being ready when you ask, when you call. So help us, I pray, help me, us, God to remember what you did with Saul and then what we know as Paul, what you, oh my gosh, how he has influenced for so much the world, God. We don't know what you have for people. God, help us. We need your help. And we ask right now, God, that you would put on our hearts those people to be praying for regularly and being prepared to maybe even be involved in their story. And God, now as we, as we move into a time of communion, Father, as we 
as we remember the, the bread, as we remember the body of Christ that was given for us, as we remember the blood that was shed, God, this is where the power comes from. This is where the joy comes from. This is where the goodness and the grace comes from, God. So as we, as we take this time of communion, God, may you meet us in a way that we know you can only do as, as we allow ourselves to be open to what you have, as we confess what we need to confess, ask what we need to ask, but most of all, let you love us the way you want to love us. In Christ's name.